Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Vix Gutierrez about her essay, Don't Step Off the Path, which appears in the new fall issue of The Common, which just came out last month. Vix Gutierrez has lived and learned in more than 20 countries. Her work has appeared in Subtropics, The Timberline Review, Nailed, and elsewhere. Her essay, Dark Sky City, was a notable in Best American Essays 2021. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Florida. Vix Gutierrez, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Would you set the scene for our conversation to describe where you're calling from right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm currently staying with good friends in Portland, Oregon. Um, I recently got back from a few months abroad and kind of staying with friends in the in-between time while I'm setting up again. So back what used to be my home in Portland. Oh, perfect. I'd love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this is from Don't Step Off the Path. When I was finally allowed to leave home on my own, my sister accompanied me on the train from Moscow. For the first leg, anyway. In the morning, she would get off, and I would go on to Croatia alone. We knew the instructions well. No sooner were we inside the sleeper cabin than my sister set to blocking the air vent with clothes and duct tape. It was 1998, and along with the first popular elections and counterfeit genes, the Russian wild 90s had brought rumors of enterprising thieves who pumped sleeping gas through trains' ventilation systems and then went through the cars relieving unconscious passengers of their valuables. Local friends had cautioned us to keep our passports on our persons at all times, but at 16 I was short, shy, self-conscious, and prone to vivid imaginations. The prospect of strangers running their hands over my body, unconscious or not, seemed far worse than that of losing my passport, so I left mine and my bag on the seat as a decoy. It wasn't my first time moving to a new country. The 16 years of my life so far had been lived between four continents, 11 countries, and even more cities. But it was my first time splitting away from my family, my first time going off on my own. And so, as I reminded myself again, with a visceral vault of terror and delight, 
It was my first time away from home. It didn't hit me until the train whistled us awake in Austria, at which point my sister kissed my cheek and disembarked. Then I felt even smaller. I latched the door and curled into the lower bunk, holding my bladder so I wouldn't have to venture out, my heart chugging time with the engine. On the connecting train from Zagreb, a persistent porter pointed at my suitcase and wanted money. I had none, so I fixed my gaze straight ahead and pretended not to understand. In the seat across, a woman with stiff, bleached hair looked over the rim of her National Geographic magazine. The woman said nothing until she passed me on her way off the train. Then she pressed the 20 Deutschmark bill into my hand and said, good luck. Thank you for reading that. I just love that opening. It is um, so much promise and so much fear as well. Um, Thank you. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you just sort of describe or summarize what the piece is about? Yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so this is a personal essay, nonfiction. Um, I guess it's sort of a coming-of-age story, except um, instead of being set in a more traditional setting like a high school um, it was set in the um, newly independent states of the Balkans um, pretty recently after the Yugoslav Wars. Um, and I was 16. I was living with a humanitarian, very small humanitarian organization um, that was comprised of two adults and five kids my age. So it's this uh, <laughs> kind of hard to explain, but a lot of duality of... Um, my personal search for independence and personal power, also sexual exploration um, in a setting that was uh, where the dangers were very real and uh, where the countries had recently fought their own battles for independence. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, it's funny. I've been working on a sort of coming-of-age novel, and I think so often the stakes in sort of coming of age stories are just sort of, will the person figure out who they want to be or will they figure out how to, how they want to move through the world? And, um, the stakes in yours are so high because there's, you know, there's literally landmines and there's, mm -hmm. you know, you know, we're in these places where like sexual violence was a big part of the war. Um, and so it just, yeah, it's very, very heightened, I think. Um, but still those usual teenage things of having to learn, um, yeah, about, sex and flirting and uh, body image and all those things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, so complex and so much duality. Um, I'm just curious, like what inspired you to start work on the piece? Um, obviously, you know, these are experiences you've had in your head for decades. Like how did that first draft come together? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'd actually had a few attempts at writing this piece. Um, it's a time of my life that felt very pivotal very formative. And I tried a couple times. It just never felt quite right. Um, I had a hard time getting the tone right. I'm just telling the story the way that felt right to me. Um, and so I think it had a lot to do with being in the right setting. Um, at the time, I was at the University of Florida, um, and I was in a workshop with uh, Professor Uma Kpan, um, and it was a fiction forms workshop. Um, we had been reading um, some historical fiction novels um, from various African authors, and he, one of the assignments in the class was to write a historical fiction. 
Um, and of course, uh, even though it wasn't fiction and not exactly historical, because I think the, uh, the description for historical is about 50 years <laughs> past, <laughs> but um, the Professor Akban was very uh, wonderful and encouraged me to write the story. Um, so I wrote it, um, I think it was just a couple of days, just mm-hmm. kind of flowed out of me once I started with a first line, which isn't the current first line of the story. Um, but for some reason, everything just kind of came out after that. So yeah, and it was uh, just such a wonderful setting to be in. My classmates and Professor Akban were so uh, encouraging and generous with their time because the first draft was 40 plus pages. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think... Um... Yeah, your essay is on the longer side for stuff that we publish. Um, I think the word limit that we usually read to is 10,000 words, and um, and we're close to that. And, and, you know, I read the piece when you first submitted it to the common, and it was long then too, but it feels really reshaped now. Um, mm-hmm. So many things felt new, and it felt sort of sharp and powerful, this really great dark undercurrent running through it. I wonder if you could just talk about like how this piece has shifted maybe from like either that version that you submitted or the version that you originally wrote um, with your classmates feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This was such an amazing experience for me. Um, So I submitted to the common and um, I received, let's see, how would I put it? Um, A pause or I, it was um, uh, Jen Acker, the editor um, wrote back expressing interest in publishing, um, but she thought it needed significant revisions um, around theme, um, kind of just making it more cohesive. She said, at this point, there's a lot of really great description and um, material, but I'm not exactly sure um, what the author wants the reader to come away with. Um, and she identified a few themes that she noticed that might possibly be honed. Um, and they were themes that I'd had in mind when I was writing, but, um, it, they were really important to me and it was important to me to bring them out in a way that did feel, you know, uh, obvious to the reader. Mm-hmm. So, um, receiving that feedback, um, made me want to, you know, really get it to the place where I felt it needed to be. Um, so it definitely aligned with my vision and it was such an amazing opportunity um, being able to work with her um, and the editors of The Common because I think it's very rare that you're able to work with uh, professionals on this level shaping your essay for publication. Um, so yeah, it was just a really amazing experience that I'm going to take with me as I continue writing. Great. Yeah, Jen is a, a fantastic editor and I think one of the things we're, we're lucky to have at the common is an, enough staff and time to be able to spend, um, you know, endless emails and, and months, you know, working with authors back and forth on drafts. Um, and it just, you know, I mean, it's so worthwhile because it lets us publish things that, um, you know, maybe didn't come to us fully formed or in their, in their final form, but, you know, are so, you know, so worth sharing with our readers. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, we learn a lot doing it as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely amazing experience. 
usually it's either, you know, when you submit for publication, it's either a rejection or a positive rejection or an acceptance. But being Mm -hmm. able to have this experience of shaping a piece and really seeing how each line counts and, you know, making it uh, just the best version of itself is amazing. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I know a lot of lit mag editors would love to do that kind of work and just, you know, aren't able. So many of them are run by volunteers and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it makes it hard to spend that kind of time with a piece, but it is so special when you can. Yeah. Um, I imagine that you must have had about a million moments and memories and feelings that could have gone into this piece. Um, And you had to choose kind of carefully what to include. And I'm sure some of that, you know, changed in revision, but how did you make those decisions or was it just kind of, you know, what, what came out on the page when you were writing that first draft? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think many of those million memories did, (laughs) did make it to the first draft. (laughs) Um, Um. Fortunately, I kind of, the way I was writing them um, was almost vignette style where like each um, scene kind of was contained in a way as far as the opening and closing. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, before I submitted to the common, I had cut about 10 pages and um, I kind of at that point was thinking about theme. um, And so I was able to cut some that didn't, you know, were kind of tangentially related (laughs) but um but yeah when I was first writing definitely so many uh, memories and even characters came out and um and it was more a matter of editing back I think yeah that really makes sense and yeah just focusing on those those themes that you wanted to bring forward I was thinking about um again trying to remember the first draft I had read which was I mean over a year and a half ago, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parts of the essay that really sang for me this time when I read it were the scenes when you and, and the other teenagers um, that you mentioned that you were sort of living with and staying with are dressed up and performing, sort of singing songs for tourists or performing for, for rowdy, you know, sort of flirty soldiers at army bases, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, it's so extraordinary and, and you paint it so vividly. Um and obviously I never did anything like that, but it really brought me back to the, that weird time of being a teenager where sometimes it really feels like being sexy and flirty is like the only currency you have, like the only power that you have to sort of exert yourself or exert your will because you're still a kid. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's, you know, it's also a creepy and strange. Um, and hopefully it's a little bit less like that for teenagers now, but um I would love to hear more about how you worked that feeling into the essay, not in those 
scenes specifically, you know, just those scenes, but, but throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. I feel like, um, in a way it was very, it was, it was part of my kind of, um, finding my own personal power or gaining Mm -hmm. confidence. Um, I think before that I'd always been kind of quiet, shy, you know, and not really, I didn't really feel seen and heard. And then all of a sudden getting this attention kind of, you know, it was, uh, kind of pivotal (laughs) part of my growth but I think um and I'm sure that experience uh, hopefully like you said not anymore but I know a lot of people have experienced that and um you know also looking back there's at the time this is in the late 90s you had you know this kind of uh I, one of the scenes in the story is Girls Gone Wild coming on MTV. You know, yeah. it's very much that culture of just sexualizing uh, women, especially. And uh, yeah, it was just seen as normal almost. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think um, part of the, the story, too, is kind of moving past that and finding um, a deeper source of personal power, you know, that's... Um, that's beyond something as, uh, as, as silly as that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And also being in, in, you know, in a place where, you know, there's, like you said, the, the recent war, they're sort of recovering and, you know, the systems are sort of run by men and by the military, which are obviously mostly men, you know, that if there is some little space that, that you can carve out where there is power there, you know, it would be, that would be attractive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, another thing that really um, stood out to me in this piece is this sort of undercurrent um, of rape and sexual violence against women, um, or, or you know, women having to to do sexual work or, or that kind of thing, often as part of the war. Um, and you you do it really subtly, really quietly, which I think fits really well since those things are you know typically not talked about out in the open and are sort of these like unspoken things happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, and obviously those play into those scenes that we see that are more flirty and more sexy. Um, how did you work to get that balance just right to sort of like touch on those, that sort of threat without making it feel like overblown? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that has to do with um, writing this version. Um, obviously, you know, at the time I was pretty sheltered and pretty naive. Um, about the realities of what had happened, you know, and what very often happens during war. Um, just And since that time, I've done a lot of research. Um, I've, I've spent hours watching BBC footage, you know, of the, the Yugoslav wars, just trying to understand more because it's still very complex to me. Um, and, you know, since I've learned more, it's it's been pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty a lot. And, um, and at the same time, uh, writing this story, um, it was at a time, you know, where I was learning about myself through learning about the world. Um, so I think going a bit closer to that perspective of that time felt more true to the story. Um, so, you know, at the time I wasn't as aware and that's a big theme of the story is learning how to see and how to be in the world. Um, so yeah, I think just, um, 
kind of finding the point from which I wanted to tell the story helped me find that balance. Yeah, I think it's it's really skillfully done because I think it it does stay in that that young person perspective um, where maybe you're not so aware of what's happening and stuff, but there's, you know, women staying in houses and it's how do they get to stay there and these sort of, you know, implied things about what might be going on behind the scenes or what might have happened during the war and that, you know, that people aren't talking about. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it just feels really true to, to what I'm sure the experience was. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Um, I, I know you finished an MFA this year, so congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I know also your undergrad degree is in journalism. Um, I wonder like now that your work is mainly fiction and creative nonfiction, what, what role do you think that, that journalism background plays in your style or your approach to writing, if you think it does? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think journalism, I mean, it was only in my undergrad degree that mm-hmm. I actually use it in a traditional sense. Um, but it was really, really invaluable what I learned, um, just kind of drawing connections between the personal story and the greater, you know, political, social, economic, um, all these factors that connect. And, you know, being able to have a broader perspective as well as zooming in, um, these are all, you know, tools of creative storytelling as well. But I think, um, the my my training in journalism helped me to sometimes zoom out a bit to see the connections um, and you know just the who what where when why um, even if all of that doesn't make it that much into the story I think it's important to consider that um, because so many times we kind of uh, take the setting or the socio political context for granted as the way it is. Um, but once we start to explore that a bit more, I think it can really inform the personal story as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Journalism is so focused on like what the reader will experience or need from the piece, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes over here on the on the creative side of things, we can be very precious about art. And I think that there's such a, a value in kind of acknowledging that someone needs to read it and understand it and have all the information they need to process it and that kind of thing. Yeah. I could see that that would be helpful. Yeah. And then sometimes it's a matter of editing back too. <laughs> so, Cause you know, that was my issue with this piece. I saw all the connections were there in my mind, but you know, whether I get it on the page clearly is another story. Yeah. And it's such a strange thing about revision too, where like sometimes our, our instinct is to add something to clarify and often just actually cutting back is what helps like bring clarity to, to, to certain subjects or topics. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting process. Um, you and I met at Disquiet, um, which was such a great time. And just for listeners who don't know, it's, it's a literary conference um, with two weeks of writing workshops in Lisbon, Portugal, um, run by some really fantastic people. Um, I, I think you've, you've been more than once. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I went twice, um, one in 2018 and then the second time in 2019. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 2019 is the year that I went there. Um, what, what do you love about it? I mean, it, it seems like it sort of is like the perfect marriage of like, you love to travel and you love to write. <laughs> yes. Um, and how much time do you have? <laughs> um, this quiet has been absolutely amazing in my life. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it was, you know, part of this piece, like this happened, what, 
20 plus years ago that the the essay we're talking about is set. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really like setting the seed to what got me to disquiet, even starting to imagine doing what I love, which is writing. Um, And by the time I reached disquiet, it was after a series of just taking small steps towards that goal. Um, And when I got to disquiet 2018, I was just in awe. I was like, people are doing this with their lives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was just beautiful, you know, set in Lisbon, Portugal, um, with incredible authors and readings set around the city. It was just such a beautiful kind of, you know, um, insight into expanding my dream. Um, and, you know, I'm so grateful to my family and friends who actually helped get me there. <laughs> um, and so it was really just so much support and so much uh, just wonderful um, people just writing and talking about writing and reading. And so the second time I went back uh, really opened some new doors for me um, from there. I was able to go to the MFA program at the University of Florida. Um, I also had an essay published that I worked on there. Um, so it's just been a really amazing string of events that just followed, you know, just taking those little steps. Yeah, I really, it's funny. I really feel the same way about Disquiet. I had been to probably one other writing workshop before then, but I felt like at Disquiet, people just really took my work seriously. And I don't mean that because my work was so great. I mean that people were really taking each other's work very seriously as like career career work, not just a hobby or a project or something like that. And it, to see everyone treating it like that was it just, I, I don't know why it was so pivotal for me, but it really was. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. um, everyone's there and having a good time and enjoying Portugal, but also working really hard and supporting each other and, you know, giving great feedback and stuff. It really was just, yeah, really, really pivotal for me in my writing as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's so amazing. It's so important, you know, to have that community and just, I mean, so many people I know that I met at Disquiet have had books published since. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Always the last question we ask um, people on the podcast is just, you know, what are you working on now? What, What should we look for next from you? Thank you. Uh, Yeah, so I actually just finished uh, the second to last round of revisions on my memoir. Wow. Um, I've spent the last, well, not the last, but before moving to Portland, three months in Spain. (laughs) After the MFA program, I just kind of packed everything up and gave it all away and um, went to Spain so I could finish my memoir, which I'd written in the MFA program. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very close to done. Um, a version of this essay is in there Mm -hmm. and yeah, I'm really excited to see the next steps with that. Oh, that sounds amazing. I, yeah, it's not hard at all for me to imagine that there's a a book's worth of experience, you know, after reading this essay, which is just such a, you know, such a small slice of your life, um, and all, all the countries you've lived in and experiences you've had. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. I'm I'm so glad we got to do this. 
Yeah, it's great talking with you. Hopefully, you know, next time in person at Disquiet or something. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to get back to Lisbon these days. Yeah. Right. Same. Listeners, you can read Vix's essay and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.